The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello there, and you're very welcome to this additional Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Cody Keenan was Barack Obama's director of speechwriting in his second term and remains to this day his personal speechwriter, and he's currently working with the former president on his memoir as we speak. Cody Keenan was in Dublin this week, and I talked to him. Cody Keenan, you're very welcome to Dublin, or back to Dublin, should I say? Thank you for having me. What brings you here? Uh, A couple of things. Number one, you don't need a reason to come to Dublin. Um, But I'm here for the Washington Ireland program, which I've been working with for about seven years. Um, usually in Washington, this is the first time I'm working with them in Dublin, but it's this, this great organization that started by bringing together uh, young leaders from, from Northern Ireland and from Ireland uh, to learn from one another to get jobs in Washington. And now they're kind of branching out into you know, creating the next generation of, of young leaders, not just in politics, but in business and culture. And tell me a bit about your own background. How did you fall into this very interesting world you find yourself in? Into politics in general, yeah, uh, it's 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 a long, not straight story of luck and happenstance and failure. Um, I wanted to be a surgeon when I first went to university, and chemistry weeded me out. Uh, so I ended up going into politics because um, <laughs> anybody can do that. And uh, you know, I got my first internship on the Hill uh, after a lot of failed interviews with Senator Ted Kennedy. Uh, worked there for a few years, went to graduate school, and gradually, you know, a friend of a friend introduced me to John Favreau who was Barack Obama's first and only chief speechwriter uh, at the time. And uh, that was 11 years ago. And I just have been too stubborn to quit since. So you were John Favreau's deputy or assistant for I was his intern years. at first, yeah. Okay. Uh, intern on the campaign, then a junior speechwriter in the White House. Then I was his deputy, and we shared an office together in the White House for about a year. So through all those years of working for and with Barack Obama, really from the early days of the of the presidential campaign, one of the many notable things about Barack Obama is he's an extraordinary orator. And I suppose people wonder how much of that oratory is Barack Obama's. Most of it. Um, and th- that's what makes for, I don't mean he literally sits there and writes most of it, but that's what makes for a really good pairing. Um, that's what I learned from watching him with John, you know, before I became chief. That's what I learned from him now. I mean, any good relationship between a speechwriter and the principal, the, the principal has to have input. 
you know, you're writing, you're not just writing for somebody, you're writing what they want to say. Um, and that means the, the, the person who's speaking, you know, whether it's president of the United States or a CEO or whoever has to have some sort of worldview, you know, has to, um, have some sort of vision, you know, and, and once you really can pick up on what that person wants, not only what they want to say, but why they want to say it, that's when you have a successful relationship. So by saying it's mostly him, I mean, we're the ones spending most of the time sitting in front of the computer, but we're trying to get him a draft, A, that he can work with, uh, but B, that he doesn't have to work with because it's close enough to what he wants to say. There's a saying which has been passed around so much that I think it's probably become a cliche, but there's still there's think there's some truth in it, which is that uh, people campaign in poetry and they govern in prose. Is there any element of that in the way that Barack Obama had to recalibrate or think differently about how he would speak publicly once he had become president? Yeah, I mean, things become cliches because they're true. You know, <laughs> writing, I, I, writing campaign speeches is infinitely more fun than writing White House speeches because uh, nothing's your fault and it's all aspirational. You know, so in 2008, we could really kind of let it rip. Once you're in the White House, everything's your fault. You have to explain why you're doing what you're doing. You have to try to convince people that you're going in the right direction, even if it doesn't necessarily feel that way. Uh, and we really struggled with that. And you know, he took office right at the beginning of the financial crisis in America. And we were dealing with the aftermath of that basically for all two terms. So that was always a real struggle. But um, to his credit, he was the one who always wanted us to remain fearless, You know, never get trapped in don't get defensive. Don't explain away things. And there were times where we had to do that when we had rough years. But he was always the one who said, you know, remember what got us here and stay true to that. I, I mean, I wonder, particularly in relation to Obama, because he is, was, is such a such a remarkable rhetorician in his own right. And then, as you say, he was confronted with these um, these huge problems, which he had to find pragmatic in many cases solutions to, some of which might have disappointed some, some of his followers or some of his constituency. Did that disjunction between the you know the the, the soaring rhetoric rhetoric and the gritty reality of, of of government? Do you think he suffered at all from that because that what some people derisively called the hopey feely thing uh, was so far away from the the dirty reality of bailing out Wall Street, for example? Yes, he did suffer from that, but that's the job. Um, you know, we we ran with these kind of big ideas that we ultimately saw most of them through, but when the bottom falls out of the economy six weeks before the election you got to recalibrate things a little bit. I mean, we certainly didn't anticipate going to the White House and writing speeches about how to get, you know, frozen credit moving again and how how we're going to this month I'm going to keep 6 million Americans from losing their homes. It's not the kind of aspirational stuff you want to go into a White House writing. And he did suffer from that. Um, I think part of it was the circumstance, part of it was, you know, a coordinated Republican strategy to deny him any victory by working together. Because that was the one thing they could deny. You know, when he promised that he'd work with the other side, build bridges, compromise, do things together, that's something they had every, they had all the power to stop. And they did. And that worked too. Because it can convince people, well, look, another politician promised he'd get Washington to play together and they didn't. And that just makes people even more cynical. Um, But we also fell in a lot of traps where we, you know, tried to explain complicated policy too much. We tried to reason away too many things. But... You know, over the long eight-year trajectory, you know, you hold it up against any of our campaign speeches from 2008, and I think you'd be pleasantly surprised. Is there not a counter-argument that 
to that though that the incredibly negative strategy which was first I think put together by Mitch McConnell when he was Senate Minority Leader and then put fully into effect when the when the Republicans got control of um, of, of the Senate and the, and the House which was essentially stonewalling everything stopping everything not not uh, collaborating in any way that the that the Republicans won the fruits of that particular policy in 2016 yes for sure I mean you know <clears throat> look what happened with the Supreme Court and I don't have a better answer for what we could have done differently. I mean, I don't have a lot of patience for people complaining now that, you know, if Barack Obama just led harder or gave more speeches in 2016, it would have changed Mitch McConnell's calculus. It wouldn't have. You know, McConnell won that fight. He knew that all he had to do was stay strong. Um, but there's also not a lot I know that we could do differently. You know, it's it's not a question of just leading harder or, you know, have Barack Obama march on Capitol Hill like Martin Sheen did in the West Wing. I mean... It's just the way politics works. Um, but when you put it that way, I think the amount of things we did get done, uh, despite that obstruction, is pretty staggering. And the fact that we probably would be even farther along had they not obstructed things, I think is something that should be a condemnation of them. You're working still with Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. He's working on, on, on a book, a major book, yep. I think. I don't know if you're able to tell us when it's coming out. As soon as it's done. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear that at least. Um, What's that like? Because the other thing which he's famed for, obviously, is, you know, and he's unusual again among certainly contemporary politicians in being able to write so well and has already done so. So what's it like to work with him? We've kind of switched roles. I mean, he's he's doing the writing of this book. I'm basically an assistant here. Um, whereas in the White House, you know, he'd have 12 hours of meetings a day and stay up till 2 a.m. reading his briefing book and editing speeches. I would just be sitting at a computer drafting. He's doing all the writing now. Um, so I just get him whatever he wants, you know, whether it's research, whether it's, you know, interviewing former senior aides, um, whether it's editing, um, whether it's drafting a piece here and there, but it's actually pretty great to watch him work. I think it's been cathartic for him and it's something he's been longing to get back to for a while. I mean, I, I think in the white house, he wouldn't have had a speechwriter if he didn't need one. If he had 48 hours in a day and 24 of those hours were just for speech writing, that's mm-hmm. what he'd do. Oh, really? Yeah. He, to this day, he still reminds me he wrote that 2004 speech by himself. So He he talked after the election about, about the long arc of history and how that essentially bends towards positivity and progress, regardless of blips that may occur along the way, such as perhaps the blip that we're, um, that we're in at the moment. And I know there's a very long-standing convention that... Um, uh, U.S. presidents, once they step down, don't intervene directly or try not to comment directly on their successors' activities. But come on, he must be absolutely fuming there. A couple things. <clears throat> I mean, one, it is tradition. Um, and in a time when, you know, every political norm and tradition is breaking down, this is one that he has the power to uphold by, by himself. Number two, he has already spoken out more than any other former president, um, like he promised he would, whether people's rights are threatened, um, whether the, you know, the planet or security are threatened by decisions the Trump administration's made. Um, number three, he wants to give, you know, Democratic candidates or just any Democrat who wants to step up and lead the oxygen in the space to do that. And if his voice is out there on a daily, weekly basis, that makes it much more difficult. The way our, our political media works would just make everything Obama versus Trump. Um, and Obama can't run again, you know, ever. So for president, for president, he can run for other things. He can run for mayor, sure, whatever. <laughs> he'd make uh, a pretty good Supreme Court justice, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think he'd like it too. <laughs> I, 
I was listening to, I, I can't remember which podcast it was, but one of the many American political podcasts. Um, and obviously the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are currently in the midst of primaries for the for the midterms, which are coming up in, in, in a few weeks' time. Somebody made the observation about the different wings which currently exist within the Democratic Party, which simplified down essentially are the, the post-Clinton win, wing, the sort of technocratic um, centrist establishment Democratic Party and the Bernie Sanders wing. And I know that's, a, that's an oversimplification, but in the course of that conversation, I thought it was interesting. Somebody piped up and said, but what's the Barack Obama wing? Where where does you have this incre- still incredibly powerful political figure who stood for a number of things? Where does the Barack Obama political tradition exist now within the Democratic Party? And I mean, you talk about him perhaps supporting um, and giving you know giving his weight to certain candidates. What is that? What is, is is it between those two poles in the current Democratic Party, or is it something else entirely? I think it's just starting. Um, First of all, you have a lot of former Obama staffers who are running for office right now, people who served across the administration. But I also think the legacy of a president is in more than just you know headlines and policies. It's in what a young generation, the generation that came of age during that presidency, goes on to do with their lives, with a public life. Uh, I think you're going to get a lot. I think the Parkland kids and that generation, I think, is Obama's legacy. They're just a little too young to run for office right now. Um, and then you know, I'd caution against dividing you know, among, you know, incrementalism versus uh, whatever, whatever the phrases you just used were, technocrats and mm. idealists, because he, he was a mix of all of them, you know. Um, he was somebody who wanted to cover everybody with health insurance, got halfway, which is halfway farther than any other president had gotten. And that's a big victory, and that's something you protect on and build. It's not a failure to not get all the way through. Um, you know, I'd also say... Everybody focuses on the fissures in the Democratic Party, but really the fissures in the Democratic Party, we're talking about, you know, what level of wages people should have, how much health insurance people should have. I mean, these are good things to be fighting about. We're not arguing over how racist a party should be, you know, or how fake climate change is. I mean, I would much rather be a Democrat right now than to be a Republican. Yeah, I'm not actually talking necessarily about the divisions. I think, you know, healthy disagreement and political dis- disagreements within a political party, which by definition is a is a broad coalition, you know, is is actually fine. But and and I take your point about what the Democratic Party stands for now, but I suppose one of the things that strikes all of us almost 2 years now since the um since the election is that Obama <clears throat> certainly seemed to be a healing, not post-racial, I know that's not a phrase that he liked, but a healing figure in the long and fraught history of mm-hmm. racial relations um, in the United States. And the, the reverse of that that has occurred ex- to an extraordinary level mm-hmm. over the last couple of years or so seems to be at the core of what a lot of the arguments are going to be about, sort of setting the economics aside for a moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does he... What does he think about what's happened in terms of in terms of you know race and politics in the United States in the last two years? Given you know the speeches that he'd made and the and the you know the policy uh, things that he'd introduced, what does he think of that? I'm going to keep private conversations private. Yeah, uh, but I will say, you know, he over time he's always talked about how, and you you hinted at this earlier, how progress doesn't follow a straight line, right? The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But he always added, it doesn't bend that way on its own. It's because we pitch in and we bend that arc. And sometimes there are going to be setbacks, which is what we're going through right now in a pretty significant way. Um, but you do have to look at that longer view, which is which is hard to do 
when things are awful now, and it's hard to do when you actually see racism on a scale that you haven't necessarily seen it with your own eyes before, or when you're worried that your own door is going to get knocked down and you're going to get deported in the middle of the night. It's tough to see that. But the trajectory of our country is undeniably upward, you know, even for all the times it's ticked downward. Um, but what keeps it going is that people get organized and active and involved and engaged and fired up. And this is something he talked about a lot in his final year in office and especially in the farewell address. And we're actually seeing it, you know, I mean, we do focus on the bad and there's plenty of the bad, but there are also record numbers of women running for office, uh, all sorts of veterans running for office and numbers we haven't seen for a while. Um, uh, all sorts of Obama staffers, all sorts of minorities, just and you look at who's running for these offices, and they're not cookie cutter politicians. They're people that are finally getting fired up and active and engaged. Maybe because we didn't do it early enough, you know. Like our generation has taken a lot of things for granted. And there is up. a criticism of that during the eight years of of Barack Obama's presidency that the Democratic Party didn't do its homework or its groundwork and, you know, lost a, a huge amount of local elections at, mm -hmm. at state level, at governorships, and that that and <clears throat> it now has to claw back the consequences of that, not least in horrendous gerrymandering across a lot of states in the United States. Yeah, gerrymandering is going to make it a lot worse. All that criticism is totally accurate. Um, but you, the, the, the best spin I can put on it is sometimes, you know, you burn down a forest to grow some healthy new stuff. But do you think Democrats get, I mean, the criticism of the Democrats have been that unlike the Republicans, they haven't concentrated on grabbing power at the local levels in order to build on that. And then as a consequence of that, um, you know, to be able to populate the Supreme Court with the people they want to yep. populate it with. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think culpability lies at a lot of levels in our party. I think it also lies with, you know, anybody who didn't vote in 2014 and we ended up with the Republican Senate. You can't complain about not getting a Supreme Court candidate now. One of the things that strikes me looking at United States politics, and God knows nobody's politics are perfect, but there's this veneration of the Founding Fathers and the magnificent work they did, and I don't think any of us would disagree with the, that entirely, but it's almost treated as a, as a biblical text handed down from the mountain, never to be altered. And I look at those institutions in the United States now, and the way that checks and balances are supposed to work, the way that uh, the popular vote is supposed to elect the president but hasn't done so, the way that in the midterms, the last time I looked, the Democrats will have to win by at least 7% uh, in order just to get a majority in the House. And I look at all these other elements that the uh, the way in which nominations to the Supreme Court have seemed to be entirely reduced to party policy mm -hmm. and ideology now, rather than jurisprudence or, or other issues. And you kind of say, it really isn't working very well, is it? No. I mean, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> There's, it's working as it's written, but it's not working well, right? You look at the United States Senate, where every state gets two seats. I think there was something like 10 million more votes for Democrats last time, and yet Republicans control it. I think the House, Republicans won by maybe 2 million votes. Uh, Republicans have lost six of the last seven presidential popular votes. No, it's not working well, but why would re the Republican Party have any incentive to change it as long as they're in power? They don't. Uh, and Democrats, when we take power, there are so many things we want to do. That's, that's not always the first thing we tackle. It should be this time. Um, you know, Puerto Ricans can't vote and they're a part of the United States. I live in Washington, D.C. My vote doesn't count for Congress. We don't have representation in Congress. The, so, you know, when Democrats take it back, those should be some of the first two things they do. Um, Got to reform gerrymandering. It's ridiculous. But none of these things happen if we don't vote. You know, I mean, we do have to win the House by 7%. But in 2014, 
you know, I think my numbers might be a little off, but I think young voters turned out at 28%. You get that to 50, American politics changes. We do something about guns. We do something about climate change. We do something about student loans and equal pay and housing. Anything that the young generation cares about, right now they're not being served because the block that votes in America more than any other is over 70 years old. Young people have to get out and vote, and all of this stuff gradually changes. Because you talk about guns, because some of the most powerful speeches that Barack Obama made was, was in the wake of some of the things like Sandy Hook, for example. And you talk about the Parkland student, students earlier, and you talk about the reality that the opinion polls do show that the majority of Americans believe that there should be should be more regulation uh, of, of firearms, that the Second Amendment is not the sweeping thing that uh, the NRA say it is. But the reality seems to be that you have a minority which is highly politically active, highly mobilized, is deeply involved in the very problematic funding of politics that goes on in the United States. And while people cry after a parkland and they cry after a Sandy Hook, that doesn't seem to mobilize them to go to the polls and vote accordingly. Yeah, I mean, you just answered your own question. All that is completely <laughs> accurate. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's, no, it's, 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 it's tremendously frustrating. And you know, to, to put some numbers behind you, is it's 90% of Americans want universal background checks, 80% of Republicans, 70% of NRA members. So you can argue that NRA members and Republicans aren't being served by their own organizations. And yet it doesn't matter. You couldn't move the needle. I mean, we, we pushed and we tried and we set aside our second term agenda to try to do something about it. And it failed in the United States Senate. 55 senators voted for background checks. And it still fails because you need 60 votes. Um, and it's tremendously frustrating. And it's it's a debate that's never truly been on the level because you've got one side arguing that, well, here, here comes another Democrat who's going to take all your guns away. Never happens. Nobody tries. That's not the argument. We, the only argument is that we don't want you know, criminals, dangerous people, spouse abusers to be able to get a gun with no background check and no waiting period whatsoever. Mm. That I, I'd personally like to go a little further than that. I mean, that seems like the least you could possibly do. And we can't even get that done. It's tremendously disappointing. And so th that's why these Parkland kids and what they've been doing is so exciting. But it's got to continue. Uh, I think the smartest thing they've done, I went to their march in Washington, D.C., and they had voter registration booths on every single corner. That's what these marches should be doing. It's not just a good way for people to feel good for a day, to listen to some speeches, to make clever signs. These kids did it right by registering people to vote. Will it make a difference? I don't know. That remains to be seen. I mean, that's that's really what would be a lasting legacy of these kids, of you know, the Obama years. People believing that because they can the make history, a sadly, in the past has been that that's tended to ebb away with time as as these events recede into memory. Yeah, and I think that's still true now. I mean, it, people don't talk about it as much, but these kids are still out there registering voters. I follow them on Twitter. I'm keeping up on what they're doing around the country, um, and we just can't let it. I mean, it ultimately comes down to active citizenship, which is unsatisfying. I mean, democracy is unsatisfying. Voting can be unsatisfying. Even if you get control of every branch of government, you're never going to get everything that you want. You're not going to get perfect policy. And for so long, that's turned people away and made people get cynical and like, well, nothing's ever going to change or be the same. Well, that's not true. Stuff changes all the time. It may not just get as far as you want. And when you don't vote, it definitely changes for the worse. The other thing that strikes me looking at the current American political landscape is that many of the customs and norms were built for good or ill on a, on a 
supposition that the two parties could work together to a far greater degree than they do now. Hence things like the requirement that you'd have at least 60 votes in the Senate on, on, on certain issues, for example. But the parties seem to be drifting further and further and further apart or being driven further and further apart. Do you see any prospect of, of that being reversed in any way? Or is there perhaps one needs to think about it in a different way? Because here in most European countries, people are conversant with the idea that you get a majority in the parliament and then you act on your agenda as long as you have that majority un- until the next election. And, and that seems to be where we've come. You know, I, I, I don't see a way out of it right now. Um, you know, I, I wish I could. But it's, it's an, there's no incentive for the two parties to work together in Congress. There's every incentive for them to get further and further to the left or the right, whether it's because of the primary system or, you know, media or whatnot. But there, there's very little reward for compromise, uh, and there should be, and that's unfortunate. Um, I don't know what to do about it right now. A third party <clears throat> is just not viable. It, there's nothing that will support it. If I ask you, is it the Republicans' fault primarily, I'm sure you'll say yes. But it does look to me that the Republicans are the party that have changed most and seem to be driving that division more. Yeah, and I've actually seen some scholarly work that backs that up. Um, Neither party is without blame, but they are the party that has moved farther. Um, And I just don't know. I mean, it it, it can't – the answer can't just be punishing one another at the polls every two to four years. Uh, Certainly not in, you know, the most powerful country on earth. We have to have a bigger mission than that. We have to have some sort of – we don't talk about the future anymore. You know, It's just in two-year increments and what we're going to undo. That kind of stasis just doesn't work for the world, I don't think. You know, We should be leading people somewhere and we're not doing it right now. I mean you've worked in political communications for pretty much your whole adult life. People say – a major contributory factor to that is the technological and media changes that we've seen over the course of our, of your career. It's very different from even what it was 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, do you think that's a, that's a major contributory factor? And if so, is there anything we could do about it? I think it is um, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, we can cu- curate our own news feeds now on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. We could sit at our computer for an entire day without seeing a single opposing viewpoint or anything that doesn't conform to our own. Um, so we can... We can create evidence to back up our own worldviews without even realizing it. Um, you know, Fox News is an outlier in the states. It has been for a long time. But now it's pretty much state-sponsored propaganda. And it's the number one cable news channel in the United States. Also a big problem. Uh, so if you, you know, if you see anything that, anything that any other country on earth would be covering as an American news story will be on CNN and MSNBC in the states. But you turn on Fox News and it's, you know, like... What is Hillary Clinton, a woman who's been out of politics for two years? What's she up to now? Um, again, I don't know what to do about it. I mean, none of the answers are satisfying. And these are things we spent a lot of time on in speeches in our final year. And, you know, he spoke about this at length in um, his Mandela lecture a couple of weeks ago in South Africa. It ultimately come. none of the answers are satisfying. It ultimately comes down to wanting to discern between fact and fiction, to wanting to listen to viewpoints that are different than ours, to wanting to compromise. Because the alternative is just bludgeoning the other side over the head until they surrender. But if you have large commercial companies whose business model is largely based upon appealing to people's basest instincts and getting them as riled up and as angry as possible, and do that on the basis of 
data, which is probably far more sophisticated, that leads them to know more about us than we do ourselves. Somebody perhaps at a rational level saying, oh, no, I want to get a more even you know, view, view across the political landscape. They're just not going to get it from those platforms, are they? No. And, and I think you know, News Corp is probably has a pretty healthy bottom line and they have no interest in changing what they're doing. I wanted to ask you one last question because I was listening to a podcast you were doing on Crooked Media, which is a company which is owned by your former or partly run, run by your former colleague, John Favreau, and it's a democratic-leaning media organization that produces podcasts and, and, and various other material. And you were talking about American exceptionalism. And uh, those of us who are not Americans sometimes take you know, a bit of umbrage at the notion sure. of American exceptionalism, sure. all this shining city on a hill um, kind, kind of stuff. But I think, I think it was you who said um, absolutely unequivocally that, uh, oh, that Barack Obama was an American exceptionalist or is an American exceptionalist. Yes. Why is that? And I would say more so than any other president and for a different reason than most people think. <clears throat> and this gets back to what you were saying before about our constitution being a static document. He views it as the opposite. You know, our constitution explicitly says that we are imperfect. It says we the people in order to form a more perfect union. It's our challenge. And it was, you know, <laughs> so much of the American story is, like you said, we just sprang from the head of George Washington, won World War II, and here we are, we're the best. <laughs> it's not true. You know, those are parts of a bigger, truer story. And he, we spent a lot of time in the presidency trying to talk about this, but it, it, the Selma speech he gave was probably the, the best... Uh, the best version of it. But the story of America is that generations of people have struggled, often at great cost to themselves, often to risk their own lives, to make those words of our founding true for more and more people. You know, just starting as white male landowners, we gradually expanded rights to women, to African Americans, got rid of slavery, got rid of Jim Crow, fought for LGBT rights, immigrant rights, workers' rights. That doesn't mean other countries didn't do this. But Barack Obama's view of American exceptionalism is not, we are the best. It's America is great because America can change, because we can always be better. And sometimes we take a step or two or three, like we are today, backwards. But our trajectory is undeniably one that's going forwards. Because uh, the current president is certainly not an exceptionalist. In fact, he's frequently drawn parallels between the egregious acts committed by other states, frequently undemocratic states, and basically has put them on the same plane as the acts of the United States, which would always have been a criticism, by the way, of the United States, from uh, particularly on the left, from, from other countries. Yeah, I, I think that's not the type of thing you want to hear coming out of the mouth of the President of the United States, right? Um, I, I, th I think if he's an exceptionalist, he's the kind that just thinks America's the best, and if you disagree, love it or leave it. But those are the words of somebody who was born into wealth and privilege and has, doesn't have an empathetic bone in his body and has never had to work a day in his life. Uh, but someone like Barack Obama, who was born different, uh, who had to raise himself in a lot of ways, you know, son of a single mom, half Kenyan, partially raised in Indonesia, not handed anything to be able to become what he was. This is what he said in his 2004 speech when he first entered the world stage was only in no other country on earth could my story be even possible. So he had a different view, has a different view of American exceptionalism than most any other president does. And that's that with effort, with hard work, America can always be better. And, you know, that doesn't mean that we don't delight in other countries' successes. I mean, I've, I've watched what Ireland's done over the past couple of years, and I'm really, really proud of it, which sounds a little condescending because I'm not Irish, but it's, you know... Oh, you got an Irish name. In many, yeah, thank you. In uh, seven generations on both sides. Um, in many ways, you're, you're serving as a moral conscience of the world right now. 
moral voice of the world. Given all that, and I accept all that, and I also accept that you're not going to tell me what Barack Obama thinks about the question I'm going to ask you. In my lifetime, and thinking back historically well beyond that, I can't think of a more extreme uh, reversal from one president to another than what we've seen over the last couple of years. The, 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 The contrast and the difference between Barack Obama and Donald Trump. And it causes me to wonder what happened? What caused that huge reverse? And is it, and I'm asking you about this, is part at least of it because Barack Obama was America's first black president? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's no one overarching reason. There are lots of little reasons. That's one of them. Um, but you know, I always try to caution people, <clears throat> certainly abroad where I worry about our standing falling and, and never coming back, is that Donald Trump lost by three and a half million votes. So Americans haven't completely lost their minds, right? We're talking about just a couple tens of thousands of votes in the upper Midwest, and, and we're in a different place in the world. Well, 40% of the vote all the same. I completely accept yeah, what yeah, you yeah. say, but still. No, no, no. You know, but, they also no, won Florida, it, Ohio, it's Pennsylvania. True, it's, it's true, and it's distressing. I'm not trying to spin it. I'm just trying to remind you that we haven't all lost our minds. Um, but we've been polarized for a long time. I mean, people people think of 2008 as some you know, incredible, massive landslide. Barack Obama only beat John McCain 53 to uh, 47. You know, it's still pretty close. Um, it's distressing, you know. I, 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 li- I want to believe that, you know, a lot of those voters that Obama won and then Trump won are ones that will come back because they realize they made a mistake. And, you know, none of Trump's policies are actually working out for them. Um, but we'll see. Do you feel angst that Donald Trump is trumpeting the fact that the economy is on the up and on the up and on the up, and that's entirely built on the foundations which were built by the administration? Uh, It it drives me insane. I'm not even going to try to sugarcoat it. It drives (laughs) me insane because we actually had, you know, debates inside the White House as to how optimistic we should get over the years about the economy in speeches. I mean, you know, does there ever come a point where Barack Obama can say America is back? And we chose not to do that because. Not for fear of looking out of touch, but but the economy was fragile enough throughout our tenure, even though we got unemployment from 10% to under 5%, that there's still a lot of people hurting there whose wages haven't gone up in decades. And that remains true a couple of years later. The economy has gotten better. It is booming based on Barack Obama's work. So it drives us nuts that Donald Trump is slapping his name on it and taking credit for it. But then again, that's the entire MO of his career. Um, but there is an argument that there are more underlying features of, of the American economy and indeed other economies, you know, the, the decline in manufacturing, the decline in unionization, the kind of stuff that obviously we particularly saw an effect of in the, in, the, in the Rust Belt. But even more broadly, you know, the people who used to have well-paid manufacturing jobs now work mm-hmm. in Walmart mm-hmm. and that that has an effect upon how they think about Anyone themselves. Anyone who's worked on a farm or in a factory is, is affected by automation and automation is coming for other industries too. I mean – it's going to get worse before it gets better unless we start pursuing policies that actually help. I mean, you know, the Republicans came in and decided to just cut taxes for billionaires and corporations. That is not going to help people who are worried about losing their jobs to offshoring or automation. What will our policies to pursue higher wages that, you know, actually make health insurance cheaper and cover more that, you know, make it easier to go to college and pay for it afterwards. These are not policies that our leaders are pursuing right now. That's the fundamental disconnect. And part of that is something Democrats need to make a better argument about. Some people feel that the United States, that democracy in the United States is being 
permanently damaged or is suffering permanent damage at the moment as a result of what's going on? What do you think? I don't know if it's suffering permanent damage. There's no doubt that it's suffering a lot of damage right now. Um, and this is something that, you know, President Obama gave a series of speeches about in his final year that we all needed to watch out for. And it's not just in the United States. I mean, this is something that's spreading around the world, uh, whether it's autocracy versus democracy. It's a decline of trust in institutions. Uh, do we silence our critics or not? Do we criticize a free press or try to shut down a free press? Um, democracy is fragile. And this was part one of the themes of President Obama's farewell address. It's only as strong as we are. You know, there are, the, the, we, we say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, but those truths aren't self-executing. You know, it's up to us. If <clears throat> the, we've never had to see before, well, rarely had to see if a president of the United States is going to undermine the rule of law or fire people who are investigating him or, you know, silence his critics like he did with John Brennan yesterday. We've never dealt with that before. And how we deal with it is going to set a new precedent going forward. So the answer to your question is yes. I mean, democracy is under pretty significant threat. Uh, it's not under imminent threat of collapse, but we can put a stop to it pretty quickly and shore it up if people show up and vote this fall. So Barack Obama has you know, retreated to some extent to his library as a, as a retiring president is supposed to do. What about you? Do you want to get back in the game? It's a good question. Uh, I, I am helping a few candidates right now on the side, kind of just pro bono advice for fun. A um, couple of them I know personally. One of them is running in a district that I care about. Um, but I will serve at uh, the pleasure of Barack Obama as long as he'll have me. And uh, I'm going to start teaching this fall, which I'm excited about at my alma mater, Northwestern University. And, uh, you know, we'll see what else happens from there. Cody Keenan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. Thanks to you for listening. You can contact me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.